Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. The Supreme Court's docket in 2024 is shaping up to be an important one. With cases on the abortion pill, social media and the prosecution of Donald Trump, to name a few. What's more, the justices appear to be putting themselves right into the middle of political debates leading up to the 2024 election. One of the cases that's already garnering headlines is over the use of mifepristone, the abortion pill that's the most common method of terminating a pregnancy in this country. The conservative Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals blocked changes the FDA put in place in 2016 to expand access to mifepristone, saying the agency gave short shrift to safety concerns. But Dr. Jay Haney, the FDA commissioner at the time, defended her agency, saying mifepristone has been reviewed again and again to make sure of its safety. This is a drug that's been on the market for over 20 years uh, with numerous studies that have followed that original approval, all confirming the safety profile uh, of this drug. Joining me is Greg Storr, Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter. So let's start with the case over mifepristone, which is the most common way of terminating an abortion in this country, approved by the FDA decades ago. By taking this case, is the Supreme Court sort of going back on what the conservative majority said in the Dobbs case, that, you know, abortion questions should be left to elected officials and the states? Well, the court really didn't have much of a choice but to take this case. A lower court, a federal appeals court, imposed some restrictions on the use of mifepristone, and the Biden administration asked the Supreme Court to intervene. This is not a case that's about the sorts of issues that were before the court in the Dobbs case. This case is about whether federal courts have the power to second-guess the Food and Drug Administration on decisions about the safety of, of drugs that are approved. The Fifth Circuit, a very conservative appeals court, said that the FDA gave short shrift to safety concerns and would have imposed some new restrictions on the use of the drug. And the Biden administration said, Supreme Court, we really need you to take this up. The case started with a ruling by a federal judge in Texas who is a Christian fundamentalist, Matthew Kaczmarek, and his decision had rhetoric used in anti-abortion movements like fetuses are unborn humans and that women who get abortions often feel shame and depression. And yet the Fifth Circuit did approve some of his decision. Yeah, Judge Kaczmarek, who's kind of one of the go-to judges for, for conservatives and, and, you know, in Texas, just because of the way the court system is structured, it's pretty easy for the state and other uh, conservative litigants to, to pretty much pick their judge to handle cases like this. Judge Kaczmarek would have taken the drug off the market entirely. He would have rescinded the FDA's approval of it back in 2000. The Fifth Circuit said that goes too far. It's actually too late to challenge the FDA's approval. 
But the Fifth Circuit said it's not too late to challenge some changes the FDA made starting in 2016. And indeed, we're going to block those changes. Those, among other things, said that women trying to get the drug don't have to pay an in-person visit to a clinic three times like they had to previously. So the Fifth Circuit's decision is still very much a big blow to the abortion rights movement, but it did not go nearly as far as, as what Judge Kaczmarek would have. I mean, if you look at where this could lead, if judges start to substitute their own judgment for the FDA's, that could open up a Pandora's box. Yeah, it it sure could, because this is the kind of issue that is very much one about expertise and, you know, medical and scientific judgment. This is really a first of its kind ruling, which is why an awful lot of folks think that the Supreme Court's going to reverse the Fifth Circuit. And and perhaps the Supreme Court, when it stayed the Fifth Circuit ruling earlier, that kept Mifepristone fully available while the legal fight goes forward. Although there were dissents from Justices Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito, even to that. Also, they might base their decision on standing. But even that, if they grant standing here, that means that any health care provider could challenge the FDA's approval of drugs. It seems like this is just, you know, just a bad case in many respects. Yeah, it's a really uh, aggressive use of of standing to file a federal lawsuit. These are anti-abortion doctors and organizations who who say, we are going to have to end up treating people who use mifepristone and then have medical issues. And because we inevitably will have to treat patients who are harmed by this drug, they say, that gives us standing to sue to challenge the FDA's approval decision. It is, as you suggested, entirely possible the Supreme Court won't even get to that question about whether a court should be second-guessing the FDA's decision. It might say this lawsuit should have even gotten in the door, and so we're going to throw it out just on the basis of standing. Greg, do you think that the justices have been shying away from abortion cases since the ruling overturning Roe? You know, they, they haven't really had a clear abortion case, to my recollection. Certainly not a case that anybody really thought there was a good chance they were going to take up. You know, one other note about the Mifepristone case that's pretty important is the anti-abortion doctors and organizations wanted the Supreme Court to take up their appeal as well and to essentially put Mifepristone off the market. They were trying to revive that part of Judge Kaczmarek's ruling that said the initial approval decision exceeded the FDA's power. So to that extent, the court has backed away from or chosen not to get involved in one aspect of the abortion fight that it it could have. The justices have agreed to hear an appeal from a January 6th Capitol riot defendant. Tell us about this appeal. Yeah, this is a charge that came under the the 2002 law that grew out of the Enron collapse, and and the charges were obstructing an, an official proceeding. And kind of the question in the case is, is that just about document shredding and and things like that, which is what people were initially thinking about when when the law was enacted, because we were thinking about the shredding of documents by Arthur Anderson in in the aftermath of of Enron. Or is it broader and, and can be used for, say, trying to interfere with a congressional proceeding, as happened on January the 6th. And so federal appeals courts adopted the broader construction, said it could be used against January 6th defendants, and the Supreme Court is going to hear an appeal from one of those defendants. And importantly, 
two of the four counts that Donald Trump is facing here in Washington involving his efforts to overturn the election stem from this very same law. And so if the January 6th defendant in this case uh, is successful at the Supreme Court, it could mean that two of those Trump charges get dismissed as well. And so the concern is also that Trump will try to delay that trial until the Supreme Court comes down with a decision in this case and, you know, delay it past the election. Is that something the justices would consider when deciding whether to take this case up? It was not presented to them in quite that way. So it's a little hard to to speculate as to whether they would have considered it. One has to imagine they were aware of it, and it was presented to them that Donald Trump was facing connected charges. Of course, the, the Supreme Court is also dealing with this question of whether Donald Trump is immune from any charges stemming from actions he took while president to overturn the election. That's also potentially going to delay this March 4th scheduled trial. Date. So there are a lot of sources of pressure on that trial date. It's, it's a little hard to see exactly how they're going to end up fitting together. But certainly what the Supreme Court does in the next few months is going to make an awful lot of difference in terms of that trial of Donald Trump. So let's turn to guns or bump stocks. The court's going to consider a federal criminal ban on bump stocks. So explain what bump stocks are. So bump stocks are these devices that make a semi-automatic rifle fire a bit like a machine gun. They gain prominence after the 2017 Las Vegas concert massacre when a man who was using bump stocks killed 60 people. That's the deadliest mass shooting in American history. And after that mass shooting, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms under Donald Trump redefined or reclassified bump stocks so that they are now covered under the federal ban against machine guns. And so the question is, it's not a Second Amendment question like other gun cases that we've seen, including one the court heard in the fall. It's another question of administrative law and whether ATF went beyond its authority in deciding that these devices that convert something into something like a machine gun actually constitutes a machine gun and is is therefore uh, illegal. Greg, is this going to be sort of a technical case on what it means that a weapon can automatically discharge? Yeah, it it looks like it will be. It is a question of statutory interpretation. You know, it may be a combination of technical and actual discussions about how bump stocks work. And, And basically what they do is they replace the standard stock on a rifle with this plastic casing that lets the weapon slide forward and backward. And it means that without moving the trigger finger, the weapon moves back and forth in a way that causes the trigger to depress over and over and over again without you having to move your finger. And so there may be some discussion about exactly what that is and whether that meets the definition of, to use that word you used, automatically discharging. The statute also uses the phrase by a single function of the trigger. So we'll probably have a lot of discussion about whether those words meet the description of of what a bump stock is. And the appeals courts are split on this. It's the Fifth Circuit saying that bump stocks qualify as machine guns and two other circuits saying they don't. And I want to note the Fifth Circuit because it was the Fifth Circuit also in the Mifepristone case. I want to keep track of the Fifth Circuit. (laughs) Explain why I want to keep track of the Fifth Circuit, Greg. 
Well, because they are the most conservative federal appeals court in the country, and it's a court that is very willing to sort of go out on a limb with things. And so in this case, as with Mifepristone, as with several other cases this term, it is the Biden administration that is actually appealing to the Supreme Court, asking the Supreme Court to overturn a ruling by the Fifth Circuit. And, you know, in at least some of those cases, there's probably a, a decent chance, certainly based on the arguments in some cases in the, in the fall, that the Supreme Court will, that the Supreme Court will say, you know, the Fifth Circuit, um, you know, we're conservative, but that, you know, that goes too far. Um, so we'll see. Okay. So last month, the court took another case. It peripherally involves guns because it involves the NRA, the National Rifle Association, and claims of blacklisting. There are claims that a New York state official unconstitutionally pressured insurance companies to stop doing business with the NRA because it's a gun lobby. And they're saying their First Amendment rights are being infringed on? Yeah, exactly. They are saying that government officials are undermining our work because they don't like what we're doing. They don't like the viewpoints that we're expressing. And that is a violation of the Constitution's First Amendment. The federal appeals court disagreed with that. They tossed out the NRA's allegations against a state official. the, The lawsuit itself is multifaceted and included actually claims against former Governor Andrew Cuomo. Those are are still in place, but the Supreme Court is going to decide whether claims against the former superintendent of the Department of Financial Services can go forward. Okay, Greg, that ends it for tonight, but we're going to have more about the Supreme Court term coming up next time on the Bloomberg Law Show. That's Bloomberg Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. What do you think when I say workspace? Cubicles, ugly furniture, bad fluorescent lighting. Exactly. The future of work looks different. We're selling an experience. We need a name. We. We live. We dream. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. We work. It's not often that you have a TV drama series about corporate bankruptcy. 
But this year there was We Crashed on Apple TV about the rise and fall of WeWork, Painkiller on Netflix about Purdue Pharma and the opioid epidemic, and in the making is an Amazon series about the collapse of FTX. U.S. corporate bankruptcies are at the highest level since 2020. There have been 591 U.S. corporate bankruptcy filings in the first 11 months of the year, according to data from S&P Global Market Intelligence. Joining me is bankruptcy expert Joseph Acosta, a partner at Dorsey & Whitney. So why all these corporate bankruptcies? Is it the end of super low interest rates, the rise of inflation? Well, I think we're realizing the government can't support the economy for that long. We had a lot of government aid after the pandemic, and that has worn out. So companies are now facing less government aid. Individuals are facing less government aid to pump money into the economy. And there's inflationary pressures that cause industries to suffer from just a debt servicing obligation. Let's start with the WeWork bankruptcy, which got a ton of publicity. This was a stunning fall from grace that surprised a lot of people. What happened here? WeWork expanded too fast, and it was focused more on getting more space and building it out than actually being profitable. So the concept of office shares, you know, if you take a bigger lease in a building and you chop it up to the smaller pieces and offer it to the smaller tenants. Problem is that you're on the hook for the entire lease in WeWorks, and you also have to manage all the subleases and pay the landlord. So it's a lot of work. It's an interesting concept. It grew quickly. A lot of it was with the help of venture capital. So it, it wasn't necessarily something that they, you know, raised a lot of debt for. It was venture capital. SoftBank supported them for a long time. And they became very popular. I like to say they became like the NTV of office shares. They popularized the concept. What happened is they were focused too much on getting locations. You know, they grew up to 700 locations in 34 countries. They spent billions of dollars improving the properties. But they didn't ever worry about, okay, the bottom line, am I profitable or not? Am I bringing a return? They just wanted to dominate the market and then worry about profitability. Towards the end, they switched gears and started focusing on profitability, but it was too late. They suffered from the traditional pandemic loss of people coming to work, and their membership suffered, so they couldn't raise enough revenue, which is through their memberships and or the tenants that occupy the spaces to meet their debt service. So they had to restructure. I mean, even without the pandemic, you know, it, it planned an initial public offering in 2019, and that failed. And then there was all these revelations about their financials and corporate governance problems. Do you think all those issues played a part in the bankruptcy? Well, the failed IPO exposed that their valuation was as high as they estimated to be. They eventually ended up doing an IPO after the pandemic from a DSPAC transaction, but their valuation was about one-ninth of what they originally estimated to be. And by that time, they had already accumulated an enormous amount of debt, so they didn't have ways of the money to work their way out of the problem, which is they had a huge amount of debt, they had all these obligations with you know, those 700 locations that they had. And they weren't receiving enough revenue from the tenants to meet their debt and work out their turnaround. So they used the bankruptcy to do that. 
reduce their footprint in a lot of these unprofitable areas, decrease their expenses, they would build luxurious spaces in these buildings, and they realize that that will impact profitability pretty quickly. Then, you know, traditional macroeconomic factors like inflation. Inflation always hurts everyone for debt servicing obligations. Pandemic-related issues like people don't want to go back to the office, so you have less tenant revenue. And a new trend in the market, which is that other people that don't want to go back to the office are starting to sublease their space. So there's a flooding of the market of this work share space, and they didn't have enough liquidity to adjust to that flexibility in the market. So they've been canceling leases. How does that work? Are they allowed to cancel any lease they want? Do they have to reach some kind of an agreement with the lessor? Well, that's the benefit of bankruptcy. The company in bankruptcy is allowed to cancel any lease that it wants. So they're using that as leverage against the landlord to try to negotiate down the lease, you know, negotiate the terms to a more favorable payment terms or cancel it. And they've already identified, I think, 60 unprofitable leases. And I, I suspect that they'll identify more before they exit bankruptcy. Do you think they have a good chance to succeed in Chapter 11 once they get rid of some of these, a lot of these leases? I think they do because they're also reducing their debt. They're converting some of their debt to equity. So they'll have less debt obligations once they leave bankruptcy. They'll reduce their footprint. This will give them the room that they needed to turn the company around, focus on profitability instead of focusing on dominating the market. And um, it's going to be a smaller footprint. But, you know, flexible workspace or office share, so to speak, is going to be more popular in the future as a means of reducing operating expenses of other companies. So I think they have a good model there. It's just they needed more time to implement it. Consumer discretionary companies topped the list of bankruptcies in 2023 with 76 filings, including Bed Bath & Beyond. After 52 years in business, it filed in April. I attribute it to the pandemic exposing some of Bed Bath & Beyond's frailties, some of the things that they needed to work on to begin with. They were one of the big box stores. Big box stores carry a lot of uh, operational costs. They needed to adjust to the e-commerce environment, which is what they became ultimately after the bankruptcy, and they couldn't sustain their operations. And then they made some wrong marketing strategies that didn't align with consumer sentiment, including going into their own brands instead of using national brands at their stores, doing away from their 20% off marketing coupons. Those types of things affected their profitability. Competitors like Amazon, Target, and Walmart, were they better at the online experience for consumers? I mean, they're a proven success, so the answer is yes. But hindsight 2020, they tried to reverse course But the pandemic interfered, like it interfered with a lot of retail, which prevented them from actually turning the company around before it actually had to go to bankruptcy. Did it have problems before the pandemic? It did. It was a gradual slide. As I mentioned, it was the original big box retailer dating back to the 60s. And it grew, but then it started changing models like the 2010 era and converting the brands that it sold. And it wasn't popular. Now, with the pandemic, again, the pandemic exposes you. It created a huge supply chain issue because the specific brands that they were selling weren't readily available as opposed to the national brands that customers used to buy from their store. So 
there was a point in time where you could find some Bed Bath & Beyond stores that were 35% out of stock. And that's just not what you're used to seeing from a big box store. So that reduced demand, reduced consumer confidence in Bed Bath & Beyond and decreased their revenue. So they relaunched in August with this revamped website after the company's intellectual property assets were bought by Overstock.com in June. I'm just interested in your take on this relaunch and whether Bed Bath & Beyond will be better or more successful in this online setting than it was before. I mean, it's, it's an extreme change in business models. You go from big box stores with brick and mortar to complete e-commerce, which is overstock. So I think the name means something to people. I think that with the relaunch and some marketing efforts, you could have a Bed Bath & Beyond come back. And who knows, maybe a more scaled-down version of a brick and mortar can come back in the future. But uh, right now, Overstock is just taking advantage of the Bed Bath & Beyond name, which still has a lot of cachet because it's been around forever. And it's trying to use some of the Bed Bath & Beyond brand to revive the business. I think it's a great strategy from going to nowhere to somewhere. I think Overstock is on to something. Coming up next, more high-profile bankruptcies of 2023 and the outlook for 2024. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This year, U.S. corporate bankruptcies reached the highest level since 2020. Among sectors, consumer discretionary companies topped the list of bankruptcies. I've been talking to bankruptcy expert Joseph Acosta, a partner at Dorsey & Whitney. The past several years have been tumultuous for retailers. In 2020, J.C. Penney, Neiman Marcus, and J. Crew all filed for bankruptcy. What factors allow some retailers to continue to hang on? Party City is an example. They were able to hang on for a while. But eventually, they realized they weren't generating enough revenue. They suffered enough from the pandemic's effects. And to boot, then inflation came up, which made their debt servicing obligations higher. So they survived for a while. But, you know, they all suffered a cost, you know, from the pandemic. So there was less demand. If people aren't gathering, there's less demands for balloons, less demands for parties, less demands for everything. They were able to hang on for a while, and they're still going to hang on. It's just a matter of they're feeling the effects 
from the pandemic. I want to talk a little bit about the timelines of these Chapter 11 bankruptcies. So Party City filed for bankruptcy in January, and a bankruptcy judge has already approved its bankruptcy plan. It seems pretty fast for legal proceedings. Is that par for the course, or is Party City different? Well, Party City's bankruptcy is a bit of a success story because it planned it with a restructuring support agreement, which is kind of a roadmap through bankruptcy where you get the major constituents to all agree how this bankruptcy is going to go. And so, you know, it wasn't a very complicated bankruptcy in that respect since the groundwork was already laid prior to the bankruptcy. And so its attorney said at a court hearing that it will emerge from bankruptcy as a stronger business, closing just a handful of its approximately 800 stores and preserving thousands of jobs. Is that true of most companies emerging from Chapter 11, or does it at times lead to yet another bankruptcy filing? The goal of bankruptcy is that you reorganize once. It does happen that sometimes they have to reorganize twice. However, in this respect, they reduce their debt by equitizing some of their debt. So they no longer have significant debt servicing obligations. They are stronger in that respect. The former debt now owns the company. They pump more money into the company. And so the company has time and, and capital to implement its growth initiatives, which it was trying to do, you know, but the pandemic interfered. Inflation interfered with it. Supply chain issues interfered with it. You know, all those things were exposed. But I think Party City planned the bankruptcy ahead of time. It didn't wait too long like some of the retailers. Some wait forever until they have no other options. They planned ahead of time and thus were able to avail themselves of successful reorganization. So still in the retail space, after 60 years in business, Rite Aid filed for bankruptcy in October. How much of the bankruptcy was about the opioid-related suits? Part of it was, but it also had some operational issues that it had to deal with. Rite Aid wasn't a typical mass tort bankruptcy. If there's anything, 2023 was the year of mass tort bankruptcies, but it wasn't a typical one. It only had about 1,600 mass torts against it, which is not the same as other levels of mass tort bankruptcy. It had some operational issues. It had, it had high debt. It faced inflationary pressures, you know, labor costs increased. All those things affected profitability. And so it planned with its debt holders, again, to equitize some of their debt, reduce the debt burden, and, you know, right-size the company, reduce some of its footprint, which was unprofitable, and then emerge from bankruptcy. What makes Rite Aid so different from competitors like CVS and Walgreens? Those are the competitors. I think Rite Aid suffered from a lack of competitive advantage with those companies. So that's part of the reason why it couldn't rebound as quickly after the pandemic or fix its problems outside of bankruptcy. What is happening now at Rite Aid? What stage are they at in the Chapter 11 process? They're in, the, I would say, the middle of it. They filed a plan that's an alternative plan where they equitize some of their debt, thereby reducing it at the end of the bankruptcy or sell their pharmacy benefits manager, which is one of their crown jewels, and whichever raises more capital is the way they're going to go. They started marketing Elixir, which is their benefits manager, prior to the bankruptcy. They haven't announced that sale is going to be successful. So in a lot of these cases, when there's alternative paths to take, you know, you go with the original plan path, which is just equitize some of the debt. So it's early on, or kind of in the middle, until they announce whether there's going to be a sale of Elixir. We don't know exactly which direction it's going to go. Either way, it's going to raise more capital 
to allow it to turn around the company. Either way, it's still going to be allowed to get rid of some of its unprofitable locations, which is good. And either way, I mean, I think it's going to survive through the bankruptcy. You mentioned there were other mass tort bankruptcies. There are other mass tort bankruptcies. The opiates are rampant. You know, you have Johnson & Johnson facing talc litigation, claiming that talc caused ovarian cancer. These are tornadoes. These are like tsunamis that <laughs> overwhelm a company. This issue is something that is so prevalent today in society that it's being taken up by the Supreme Court in a recent case to decide whether some of the, the tools that people have traditionally used to address mass torts can be used. And so we'll, we'll see how the Supreme Court decides will impact the future of how mass torts are restructured in the country. And then we have bankrupt trucking company Yellow Corp. It received court approval to sell most of its shipping centers and real estate to multiple buyers for $1.88 billion, ending a bidder's long-shot effort to keep the company intact. I say Yellow Trucking is indicative of how much labor has dominated leverage against companies. The reason why Yellow Trucking very successful company had to file bankruptcies because they couldn't reach an agreement with labor as to how to share the costs of the business. Labor wanted more more of the profit. And finally, Yellow Trucking decided that it wasn't going to succumb to labor's demands and decided that, that it was going to go out of business. That's the really big takeaway from Yellow Trucking. So when you look forward to 2024, do you see the sort of the headwinds changing? Do you think bankruptcies will be on the rise or on the decline? That is a million-dollar question, mm-hmm. but I, I believe inflation is not going to go down anytime soon. So more companies are going to suffer from the same that people have suffered in 2023, the Rite Aid, the WeWorks, the Party City. So you're, you're going to see that in 2023. You're going to see real estate suffering, the trickle effects of the WeWorks coming down, more real estate buffer. As I mentioned before, another real estate investment trust filed bankruptcy, filed bankruptcy two years ago. So malls are suffering because uh, there's still a change from regular brick and mortar retail to more e-commerce. I would say the trend is going to stay the same. It's going to be an upward trend towards more restructuring, more bankruptcies future because of the macroeconomic issues and the microeconomic issues that are facing these companies. Thanks for being on the show. That's Joseph Acosta, a partner at Dorsey and Whitney. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.